0: This is Authorized Access, a podcast from Microsoft Australia and New Zealand about the cybersecurity challenges facing businesses today.
1: On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity from Microsoft and beyond, as we explore high-level strategies to help confront risk in your organization. We are living today in a multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment world. It is more critical than ever that we keep our business safe. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson and I'm Kenny Singh.
0: Hello, and welcome back to Authorized Access. Today, we're excited to introduce Nigel Hedges, the Chief Information Security Officer at Kmart. Nigel is a highly experienced cybersecurity professional with over two decades of expertise. He's responsible for protecting Kmart's digital assets and customer data from evolving threats. Nigel's strategic vision and leadership skills enable Kmart to stay ahead of the ever-changing digital landscape. Join us as Nigel shares insights on his role as a CISO, his commitment to cybersecurity excellence, and his passion for fostering diversity and inclusion in the industry. Let's dive in.
1: It's great to have you on the show, Nigel. Yeah, thank you for having me. So our first question, Nigel, you have quite an extensive experience in cybersecurity, a very rich and varied experience in cybersecurity. Tell us about your cybersecurity journey, please.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think it all goes back to childhood, I guess, as everything does. Um, playing computer games or PC games, I should say. And I think around twelve, I lost my progress on a on a game due to the stone virus, you know, boot sector virus. And apart from being completely mad about it, I decided I was going to get into the computer and, and try to restore my system. So from there, I suppose, you know, I did go into science at school and did biology and all those kinds of things, but I always kept that interest in, in computing all the way through. And I, I ended up changing my degree and moving into information systems at the earliest opportunity. In my first job was a network support person, but I was given responsibility to look after the deployment of antivirus at that organization for desktops and servers. So I really got inspired from that point. Uh, I got my first ever um, true cybersecurity job at an Australian cybersecurity company called Vet Antivirus. And that really led me to a long career in cybersecurity consultancy, and pre-sales engineering, and, and then management roles before switching to end user customer land where I, where I work now.
1: So we understand from conversations with you in the past that you are incredibly passionate about creating a great culture, a culture that fosters diversity, equity, and inclusion in the cybersecurity teams. Can you tell us more about that? What's the rationale behind it?
2: It comes from my own experience in in the industry, noting that uh, all too often in the past we had folks from the same types of backgrounds and cultures that were leading to the same type of, you know, yes, man type of response. And if you do the same thing over and over again, you just, you end up getting the same results. So what I found really interesting is, and firstly, it sort of showed itself in, in the ways that, um, you know, you have introspective people who are extroverts and introverts. So that was one of the first things I sort of noticed that even thinking, not even of thinking of the other diversity sort of uh, ideals or, or things. Just purely, simply extroverts and introverts. Some of them think to talk, and some people talk to think. And when you gave the the space for either of those operators to work in the in the way that they prefer to work, you got some really rich information. There was no right or wrong. And then from there, it was pretty easy for me to sort of see that there was all sorts of other. Aspects, you know, whether it be gender or cultural backgrounds, that came in with a different set of uh, expertise and experiences that just provided another light that isn't always obvious. Uh, It became very obvious to me that when teams had those elements, we got a better result.
1: Especially representing the perspectives of people we protect, or if this was a professional services context, the people we serve. So that makes a lot of sense, Nigel. So just switching gears for a second, if you look at the evolution of cybersecurity. It used to sit under IT as a part of information technology. Now We've actually seen cybersecurity expand and evolve quite rapidly. And now we fast forward to today, and there's quite a few places where cybersecurity is represented at an executive and a board level. We'd just love to get your thoughts and uh, insights on that. How have you actually seen that journey unfold in your own experience? And what do you think the benefits are of cybersecurity being represented at that executive management and board level?
2: There's so much to this, so it hasn't stopped. It's still in a process of metamorphosis and um, there's still certainly areas for this to grow and change. I think overseas, especially in the US and UK markets, there's a little bit more progress than over in Australia. But even here, you could see that changing. And I liken it to the way that IT managers were perceived 20 or 25 years ago. They weren't part of the C-suite. They were struggling to learn the business language and get that opportunity at the table. And it's now hard to find any organization that doesn't have a CIO that's part of that sort of executive suite. And cyber is going through the same metamorphosis and there is a two-way street there where cyber has to lift up and learn to speak in business terms. And then there's also where the business can Reach in and allow the cyber teams to come to the table and bring their expertise. So definitely seeing that change. You know, personally for me, I've seen that change in voluntary representation on a board where they particularly a smaller health organization was seeking a person with cyber expertise to join their audit risk committee. So it is definitely changing. And that representation is good because. It allows the board to see cyber, not just as a risk and department of no, but a real enabler to the business. Another quick example I give is if the business can see cyber as the brakes on a car, you know, it's it's not that we're trying to stop things from happening. We want to give the confidence of the business to go faster.
0: I really like the analogy. And, and the one thing that we've learned and, and hearing from the different people that listen to the show is that. That conversation with the board and ensuring that cyber speaks the language of the business is becoming critically important and we're meeting somewhere in the middle. Whilst you spoke about the Department of No and how we are the brakes in the car, we're definitely going to borrow that one. How does that conversation look when you are talking about to the board about operational risk? What's some of the tools? What's some of the ways that you're communicating frequently? What are those cadences as well? We'd love to understand a little bit more from that, Nigel.
2: Yeah, look, I think the cadence is very depends on the organisation. So sorry to give you an it depends answer, but you know, typically most enterprise organisations of the size of Kmart will will have an audit risk committee that meets quarterly, and then there's usually monthly reports that are provided to the executives. So certainly at that level, it's still material kind of findings. It's not like we found. system that had 10 audit logs or someone clicked on a mouse 20 times it's it's not that sort of low fidelity stuff but really meaningful things in the past we would report things like the firewall saw 550 million events whether it's five or 550 million it doesn't mean anything so it's really the trends Operational trends of things going up, down, percentages, and particularly things like mean time to detect and respond, where you're shifting from, uh, you know, maybe an hour for response going down to 15. They are things that people can sort of connect to.
1: Yeah, that, look, that makes a lot of sense, Nigel. So, an associated question then, thinking about cyber risk, how do you quantify your acceptable cyber risk, your risk appetite, and what is acceptable from the perspective of the organisation as a part of the overall operational risk?
2: Yeah, I think this is a tricky question. It's a tricky topic because I think for a long time, anyone that's done the CIWSP certificate has uh, uh, has, has talked about risk quantification and risk qualification, and it's a really hard thing to do for quantification There's no right or wrong answer, but there are promising models and approaches, and one of those would be the FAIR methodology. This was actually introduced to me not too long ago, and I'd I'd known about it, but I hadn't really double-clicked into it, uh, so to speak. And I actually, to be honest with you, wasn't initially keen uh, because I've jaded about quantification methods, but going through that process, I could see that it actually does add a lot of value. And the way that I like to think of it is, it doesn't mean that we have to change the enterprise risk management frameworks that our organizations use. Out there, most organizations use a quality-based approach, you know, five by five, that kind of thing. But you can connect risks that are there and provide the narratives using a cyber risk quantification tool, particularly because they use ranges. that They're not trying to be precise to say ransomware will hit your organization cost you eight million dollars they'll say with high fidelity we can tell you it'll cost at least eight hundred thousand dollars and at max 15 million and then yeah, it's quite an interesting space it
0: still seems that we're we're evolving in in the way that we do talk about risk appetite and and even how then it as I said back to the original question that we're asking is Speaking the language of the business and and giving that range and and of course we want to measure everything because that's that's how things get managed. But I want to move deeper into a conversation that's uh, talking about security operations and advice to businesses. You've had a great career and background. We wouldn't be doing a massive disservice if we didn't start there. But what advice would you get if to businesses that are setting up their own cybersecurity operations center? Where should they start? Some of the lessons from the war would be great for you to share.
2: So I've worked in a few organizations now that have spanned managed SOC through to internal SOC and it really depends. I think that's before you make that decision about whether you want to go outsourced or use an internal SOC. There's lots of considerations to make, obviously. One of the things is thinking about your strategy and your objectives, the speed of your organization, that they can matter. There's a lot of contractuals in managed SOC providers. So if you're looking for a sort of more of a fixed service, then that can be certainly good. If you need to operate at flexibility and a, and a little bit more accountability, I, I find the internal SOC model works, but horses for courses. But it's really planning that SOC design, understanding what your objectives of that SOC actually are, what are the frameworks and what are the tools like miter Attack framework that you might be using to assess that, Meet other organisations about that are using socks, whether it be managed or internal, and hear what their pros and cons and their lessons learned. I think that's absolutely important. There are other other research organisations like Gartner that have produced you know, like a three-part sock design guide, which I think is quite useful. But they're not the only ones. There are other people out there. And lastly, talk to the sock providers. Surprisingly, not all sock providers are just out there to convince you to, to go to the manage. Some of them actually provide a hybrid approach. And some of them are actually prepared to bring you on as a managed service and then transition to an internal model if that was where you were heading. So, yeah, lots of opportunities.
1: And then a related question to that, Nigel. Thinking about your own SOC, what do you think are some of the challenges that SOC teams of today, including your own SOC face, anything that you can actually share with us? And how do you address these challenges? What would be the kind of the top two or three challenges?
2: It is... For me, a reflection on managed socks, but I don't want to heap on managed socks because there's some very good managed socks out there. But it's where the action and responsibility of the SOC analyst starts and ends, and, and where it gets handed off to, say, a security engineering teams. And, and a lot I see that. The eyes and glass is is picking up the incidents and finding them, and then maybe a little too prematurely handing it over to say an internal security engineer to triage and investigate. I think that's to solve that. The roles of level one and level two, especially, and and definitely level three, software analysts, is evolving to include more proactive capabilities. So it's, it's not just about from level one, two, three. It's about a supervisor pathway or management pathway, but also about the sort of breadth, so the specialities that add value, like threat hunting, purple teaming coordination, threat intelligence reporting, I think these skill sets help build the sock and lust away from that kind of, I'm just here to look at the glass and if I see something go red, then I'll just throw it over the fence. And that's one of the issues I see. The second one is the industry and the environment is just changing so rapidly that The adoption of cloud, particularly, and SaaS providers means it's quite challenging to keep up with the coverage and the architecture is changing as well. So we're going from on-premise to cloud and syslog connectors and orchestrators and all these types of components that make a seam capability hang together. And it's really challenging the technologies or controls that we use that don't have native monitoring integration capabilities. So the solution there is when organizations are selecting their control sets, particularly if they're cloud, they should have a look at whether those providers play nice with integrations, because many of them are building their own data lake systems and products and maybe not incentivized as much to support centralized security monitoring tools.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And then just thinking about the SOC again, how do you measure the effectiveness of your own SOC? Like how, what do you think some of the measures could be considered in ensuring that, one, we're actually measuring the right thing, and second, those right things are, in fact, very highly impactful in your own particular context?
2: Yeah, so I was saying before, the Materatech framework I find quite useful as an industry benchmark for the types of things that a SOC should be picking up. And then combining that with the purple teaming capability, whether that's in source or a third party, you know, providing that iterative red teaming and blue teaming sports, doing retros and learnings and repeating that iteratively, I think is quite valuable. And then it is certainly, I think, a very good approach to even do interviews of the SOC team and do like a capabilities matrix and ask them to self-assess, how do you feel your skills are in particular areas, the particular parts of the process for security analyst work. And then look back at that periodically and identify skills gaps that are good for training and development.
0: And uh, still going through and talking just because of Kmart and and where it sits in the the West Farmers group, how does the SOC actually interact and, and be part of that broader group? And how do you work together You've covered off some things around different levels in triage and triage and your focus within the SOC, but really interested to how do you be a part of just such a, a broader organisation?
2: Yeah, so it's obviously public knowledge that West Farmers Group is a bunch of divisions came up being one of them. And so this is a problem that is shared not only across the divisions of West Farmers, but every organisation really. But we have that special sort of connection within the group where we can meet and discuss the different approaches and learn from each other, share what's working, what's not working. That's really important. And so we obviously play a part in that as well, working with the West Farmers Group, SIZO.
1: And then switching gears for a second, Nigel, and thinking about the cybersecurity skills in our industry across Australia and New Zealand, in fact, globally as well, there's an acute cybersecurity skills shortage. So how do you ensure that you retain the best cybersecurity talent?
2: Well it's hard to think of the pandemic and not have thought about that, especially as the doors shut down in uh, Australia and the talent dried up. And, um, you know, there was certainly a, a shortage of cybersecurity talent and that posed some challenges in terms of remuneration and things like that, that people were expecting. But I like to think that that shouldn't be the thing that makes a team work well and make people want to stay. So for me, it's, Developing a genuine interest in people, because after all, it's people that are running the cyber team. Having a genuine interest in their development and their progress, creating a sense of tribe is another thing that I, I really like. We recently just uh, went through a process of getting cyber knights as a identity for our team, with a slogan and a cool picture on our, on our jumpers. So, just getting that sense of being together and being in this fight together, you know, having a purpose. And the power of having leadership support can't be understated. It's definitely a really helpful thing. Getting other leaders to come in and reiterate the importance of the cyber contribution, it's really easy to overlook because you get so smashed death by a thousand paper cuts in cyber. So hearing from a CXO or a GM who recognizes the efforts, it just goes a long way to sort of build that kind of uh, retention in there.
0: And I must admit, I I really love the brand that you've created internally because it gives the team identity. It gives them, like you said, a part of a tribe. And talking about that tribe, how do you ensure that they're continually learning and and having that curious mindset while they are doing the day-to-day?
2: Yeah, it's it's hard to fit it in. But if you think about A lot of the teams there in um, delivery squads and engineering as part of DevOps and agility, they have best practices that 80% of their work should be delivery-based and then there's a maintenance effort window of about 20%. So I'm not saying we should all go to that, but definitely allowing the team to uh, have time in their, their week to dedicate to their own learning is really important. And then using resources like... LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, Cyber. Cyber is, is a great example of something that continually evolves and has some great content for specifically for cyber people. And, again, don't underestimate the cybersecurity vendors out there, particularly the larger ones, because there's a huge amount of training materials that are often overlooked and really, really useful for security architecture, engineering, identity, all sorts of really valuable areas. There are value in other courses from things like SANS. They tend to be pretty expensive. Uh, There's a lot of really available things out there to use.
1: So look, these days, no conversation can be complete without talking about generative AI. So as you think about the future of the cybersecurity industry, Nigel, how do you actually see generative AI playing a part?
2: Yeah, generative AI. Wow, I I couldn't believe how interesting it was. Just like most people, I, I hit up ChatGPT and uh, asked it a few questions. And one of my questions was early on: uh, write me a cybersecurity strategy for a large enterprise in Australia. And it came back with a pretty good answer. It wasn't perfect. Still needed a human in the loop, but it was pretty good. And I thought, gee, one day I'll, uh, I'll be replaced. But it's a logical step for security to move. We've had the 24-7 era. We've had automation, hyper-automation. Generative AI and security for me is the next logical step. Due to the high volume of fosking for information, even AI allowing us to find the integrations that we need or a new data source has been we talked about just a little earlier AI could basically help provide that and bring it in and then as we move to things like deception technologies and new capabilities like moving target defense those kinds of things come into our control sets I think generative AI is going to be super helpful in keeping us abreast of those huge advancements and bringing high fidelity into that information
1: there's some very exciting possibilities with uh, how Generative AI is probably going to empower, enhance, transform (laughs) the cybersecurity industry. In fact, most of the industry is going forward. So Nigel, perhaps a related question, and my last question to you, I promise. As you think about the future of cybersecurity, are there other things that come to your mind that uh, you'd like to share with the audience? What do you think the future of cybersecurity looks like beyond Generative AI, obviously?
2: Yeah, I found it interesting to see some of the recent information from World Economic Forum around flexible batteries and the biomapping of our genes and medical technologies that can integrate with our nervous system. And that, for me, feels very much like Cyberpunk 2077. And for me, these evolutions would have thought to be science fiction, but it just seems every year we're getting closer to these huge jumps in evolution in technology. So... It's going to be hard to keep up, and I think we have to go back to first principles, what cyber is here to do, which is to prevent material risk from happening to our organisations, and then constantly going back to that and technology will continue to change. We need to get up to speed with those things, the metaverse and everything, and but keep coming back to the first principles. And while this will be
0: the, the last question that we'll pose for you today, always like to ask the question around what advice that you would give individuals that are interested in pursuing a, a career in cybersecurity. because as we said there is definitely a shortage and, and we're always encouraging more people from different diverse backgrounds but what would you give those people listening now as advice
2: yeah i think firstly would be to always be open being open allows yourself to recognize opportunities don't seek perfection. You'd be surprised how many people apply for roles when they have three of the 10 things available and still get the roles (laughs) because attitude goes a very long way and learning capability. So if you find yourself looking at a job and you say, I've got nine out of those 10 capabilities, but I don't think I'm going to get it. Don't let that stop you from pursuing that career. And I think Barack Obama said something interesting. He was interviewed recently and asked about advice he would give to new people coming in and I think I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, just get stuff done. And for me, a get stuff done attitude it goes a long way to getting a rewarding career in cybersecurity and not necessarily thinking about it purely from an ambition perspective. A lot of people I talk to uh, sort of think, well, what do I need to do over the next five years to become a chief information security officer? It's probably the wrong question. To get into cybersecurity, you just need to have a passion for solving problems and be a real solution maker
0: there was a few things that that I'm taking away from that. I would say the great bit of advice that you gave in just looking at those job descriptions and, and ticking off, but then also paraphrasing yourself is like backing yourself and going out and actually applying. Even if you don't get it in a lot of times, you're going to get valuable feedback of where those gaps are. But then also that passion, that curiosity to solve problems and fix issues. I think that creates the platform of anyone can actually have a career in cyber. You don't need to start like some of us starting in in gaming at young ages and and overcoming their first hack or breach. But this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Nigel, I really appreciate you taking the time out to share your experience. So thank you so much for joining us and appreciate all the insights you shared.
2: Thanks for the questions. I appreciate you spending time with me.
1: Nigel, thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Authorized Access, a show about the challenges that businesses face when it comes to cybersecurity.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft ANZ. Microsoft offers a comprehensive set of end-to-end security solutions that span people, devices, apps, and data. For further information, please visit the website aka.ms authorized access. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Authorized Access, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. And we'll be back next episode with more Authorized Access.